0: Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. This week I had a fun experience. I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to get a label printer set up for our our incoming uh, check in ministry for the children's church. And over the course of about five hours of reading all of the booklets in every possible language that I could understand and tinkering with every system. Uh, setting that you could possibly imagine, I finally discovered something listed in a very small type on the manufacturer's website. It stated that what I was trying to do with the machine was actually not what it was designed to do. In fact, it explicitly stated that it does not connect wirelessly to iOS devices. So, over all of that time, I was wasting my effort because, in plain English, I was trying to get the machine to do something that it was never created to do. Now, as people who have believed the gospel, people who have trusted in the message that we talked about for those three weeks, people who have believed that Christ was sent to save sinners like you and I, and who have believed in him to be saved from our sin, those of us who have experienced this salvation, we should be asking, what was I actually created to do? In other words, what is next? Notably, Paul mentions the biggest picture of all purposes of your salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it doesn't only tell you that you were foreknown. It doesn't only tell you that you were predestined. It also tells you why, for what purpose, what is God's intention? What is the manufacturer's statement about purpose? And he says it is so that you will be conformed to the image of his son. It is so that you might be shaped or molded into the image or likeness or spiritual figure, as it were, of Jesus himself. So what is our mission? The mission is to be made into the image of Christ. But how does that happen? It happens through a process that has come to be called discipleship. So to answer our big question, what is our mission? Our mission is discipleship. Now we're going to consider five Necessary aspects of New Testament discipleship today. If any of these five are missing, then that person is likely not a true disciple of Jesus at all. And the very first mark of being a disciple is the mark of being. Now, I realize this is an awkward way to start. You might think this is a strange place to jump off, but if If we get this foundational element of what it looks like to be a disciple wrong, then we get everything else wrong. So what do I mean by being? I mean that in order to carry out the mission of discipleship, someone must actually first be a disciple of Jesus. Sadly, there are many misconceptions about what this means. So I want to be right up front about this. I want to be clear about three false understandings of what it means to be a disciple. First, a disciple is not simply somebody who knows the right information about Jesus. Look, Satan knows a lot more than you do about Jesus. The demons know a lot more about Jesus than you and I ever will in this life, yet they do not believe. James kind of picks up on this very point in James chapter 2 verse 19, when he says, "You believe that God is one, you do well." That's like a sarcastic slow clap. Good job. Great, you figured it out. God, there's one God. Great job. Well, guess what, he says. Even the demons believe and shudder. Clearly, a disciple is not merely a person with an intellectual knowledge. Furthermore, a disciple is not simply someone who does things, even great things, in the name of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 tells us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, according to Jesus, the profession of submission to the Lord is not all that makes a disciple. These people were saying that they were doing these things in the name and power of Jesus himself. Yet, He says, I never knew you. It also requires a specific pattern of living. He says, you workers of lawlessness. Now, to take this one step further, just because someone does not do the same works as the world, but rather does similar works to the disciples, does not actually make them a true disciple. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. Judas was surrounded by the disciples, and he fit in. Yet he eventually displayed his true colors. Consider that Judas went out preaching with them when Jesus sent them two by two. He was casting out demons with them. He was doing all sorts of various ministry with them. Some of the stuff that we saw in that list earlier, Judas was there. He was hearing the greatest sermons that Jesus ever preached. The greatest sermons from the greatest preacher that has ever proclaimed them from the only worthy messenger that has ever walked the face of the earth. He sailed with and fished with and camped with God himself for three years. This man had every privilege imaginable. And not only that, he looked like a disciple. When Jesus said that someone in the room would betray him, nobody suspected Judas. In John's account, Judas seems to be the, very, the only disciple that is above reproach. When Jesus says one of you is about to betray me, everyone starts pointing fingers and looking around. But Judas in the middle of this gets up and he leaves, and when he does so, it says the other disciples thought he was going to either give money to the poor or to buy groceries. They could not conceive that that was the disciple that would actually betray Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said about Judas after washing the disciples' feet in John 13:10 through 11? He said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Speaking about spiritual cleansing, not physical cleansing. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So John here adds his editorial note. Why did Jesus say not all of you are clean? Because Judas was still there. So if a disciple is not, notice that a disciple Uh, is not made a disciple by their knowledge or by their profession or by their deeds, then what is it that puts someone in this category? What is it that makes someone a disciple? Now, actually, we've already heard Jesus' answer. He says, because you have been made clean. Well, how does that happen? Jesus actually explains by going back to this very same idea just about two hours later in the conversation in John chapter 15, verse 3, when he says... Judas has now been dismissed. He says, already you, which is the Greek word for you all. We don't have that in English except for y'all, right? Already you all are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. John 15, 3. So what is it that made them clean? It was the word that Jesus had spoken to, or literally this word is over them. that He had spoken over them. So at the very least, this takes our salvation out of our hands. It indicates that the category of disciple is something that happens to you, not because of you. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13 uses a parable, to dis, uh, a parallel rather, to describe what this looks like. And he uses a parallel term which is child of God. And he explains it by saying, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now if you just stop there, which many people do, it sounds as though the way you become a child of God or a disciple is merely by believing It is all on your end, according to these first part of the sentence. But actually, if you continue reading for the rest of the sentence, you will see what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm as you are coming to faith in Christ. It says, who were born, talking about that new birth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning... God initiated our salvation apart from our will, apart from our effort, apart from our worth. And he brought us to him through the gift of faith, or as John refers to it, by believing in his name. So, I say all of this to undermine a few false understandings about discipleship. First, people cannot fade in and out of being a disciple. It's not like you start off and you're like, well, I'm a Christian. For five years, and then I'm just not for the next five years. And, I, and then I'll come back in five years, and then I'm a Christian again. I'm a disciple again. I'm a follower of Christ again. That is not how it works. That is not how anyone has ever operated in the kingdom of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. It's a completely different human being. There's something absolutely radically unique about them as compared to who they were. This person is new. And what happened, the old is gone. It's not like it's an option that you can revert back to. The old is Gone, dead, in the grave, there is something that is new that has come. He is using the language of Genesis chapter 1, like God spoke to creation and things popped into existence. Likewise, with you, when you became a Christian, He spoke you into existence. You existed as a new believer, as a disciple, and now, moving forward, you cannot move back to the old. Someone who has been born of the Spirit cannot be unborn of the Spirit, if I can put it that way. You are saved, you are a disciple, because God graciously brought you in, and you will remain a disciple because God will graciously keep you in. But equally important to note when I say this, is that not all professing believers are actually believers. Not all who say they are a disciple are actually disciples. And this can display itself in a variety of ways. Now maybe they look like Judas, right? There there are some that appear like Judas. They will do good things. They will look like they are above reproach. Their sin is secret, so you are not observing it, just like he was stealing money from the uh, the purse, as it puts it. Well, there's still sin in the heart of these individuals, and they're hiding it for a long period of time, and eventually that comes out, and they depart from the church. They depart from Christian life. they, They run to their sin. They reject obedience to Christ, and then they begin to display that they never actually knew Christ at all. That's one side that it can look like. But that's abnormal. There are occasions like that, and we do see that in the church at times. But more likely and more often, most consistently, the way that you will see this is actually in those people who just display a long term apathy to the things of God. If there is no hunger for the word, and there is no delight in worship of God, and no fellowship with the people of God, and no growth in obedience to God over the long haul, that is not a disciple. There is no such thing in the scripture, in the New Testament, as somebody who comes to faith and then just continues to look exactly like they did before they were saved. Yet there are so many people today who will say, I am a Christian now, but nothing in their life changes. You could look back to the day before they were saved and then 10 years after they were saved and you cannot find any discernible difference in their thought patterns or actions. Their, Their life has to be marked by growth or they are not disciples all life is marked by growth if you look at a plant or anything in the physical world you can ask the question is it alive and if it doesn't grow then the answer is no it might grow slowly but if there is no growth it is dead there is no such thing as a disciple who is not becoming like christ jesus tells us that we will know a tree by its fruit so to sum up Discipleship requires that you first must be a true disciple. A true disciple is someone that has been called by Christ, who has believed in Christ, and who has displayed a pattern of spiritual growth that imitates Christ. So now that we've nailed down that a disciple must be a disciple, let's now consider how that works itself out in those who are by very nature nature actually disciples and what they will actually do. The second aspect of discipleship we're considering right now is beholding. Now, behold is one of those words that you probably don't use in real life. I don't. I'm assuming that you don't walk around saying things like, Ace, behold, the dog's food bowl is empty. We don't talk like that, right? Nobody in this room talks like that. And that's, I actually am comfortable with the fact that we don't talk like that at all. But behold is a very important word in the Bible. You see it all over the place. Jesus often uses this word. What does it actually mean? Beholding is not the same thing as seeing something. Beholding is gazing upon. It is being affected by or perceiving or apprehending what you are looking at. It's the difference between seeing a postcard of the Grand Canyon and being like, that's cool. Yeah, great. And then actually going to the Grand Canyon and standing in awe of what God has done in creating that magnificent landscape. It is being absolutely in awe of God when we behold him. That's what we are called to do. A disciple of Jesus continues to be enamored with and blown away by Jesus. Consider how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. First, he speaks about those who are saved and what it looks like to be saved by saying, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Yet, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. Now, I sang that a lot as a kid in in my church, singing that song, not realizing this is actually talking about the freedom of knowing Christ. And when it talks about a veil, a veil guards your face so that you can't see fully. But he says, the veil is lifted, the veil is removed, and then you can trust and believe in Christ. And so here, when you hear and trust, that salvation occurs. Everything so far is about salvation, but notice now that the text shifts and begins to speak about how we are changed, how we grow, how we are sanctified, how we are made into the image of Christ. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the, spirit, the Lord who is spirit. Now your spiritual transformation depends upon whether or not you are beholding the glory of Of the Lord. True discipleship depends on this kind of Christ-centered understanding of spiritual progress. If you were to do a survey of Christian books or media or songs or churches or pastors, you will quickly reveal that most Christians don't actually seem to understand what the Bible actually says about how people change. How does someone change? Well, you just tell them the right thing to do and then they're supposed to do it, right? Wrong! That is not what the Bible actually ever does. There is a reason why I don't preach sermons like Nine Ways to Be a Better Mom on Mother's Day. I don't preach that way, first of all, because that's not a sermon. At best, that's a TED Talk, and at worst, it's just a regurgitated BuzzFeed list. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) I don't preach that way because that can't help you. I mean... All that's going to do is make you go back and become a better Pharisee at best. I can't do anything like that to help you. I preach Christ and I do so because I know that that is the only hope that we have of changing and being conformed to his image. It's by beholding him. Show us Christ we sing. This is not just splitting doctrinal hairs. This is absolutely central. This is immensely practical the gospel is not only what gets you into the door as a Christian. The gospel, the good news of Jesus and his atoning work on your behalf, is also the exclusive factor in your spiritual metamorphosis. If you don't believe me, then I encourage you to take a challenge. Go through your Bible, read the New Testament, and whenever you come to a command of any kind, I want you to see that the New Testament author will ground that command in the gospel every time allow me to give you a couple of quick scriptural examples and i'm using these two because i know you are familiar with them and i want you to see how they are pres- how the gospel is present in them two weeks ago pastor paul was preaching about how the body should have unity with one another and to make his point he went to philippians chapter 2 which presents us with the following command it says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." That is a massive command. That is a crazy, difficult thing to do. And if he just dropped the mic right there and left the church and said, all right, here's your gargantuan task, go. I'll come back and check in a year and see how you're doing. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says to them, have this mind, the one I just described, have that among yourselves, which is yours which belongs to you in christ jesus and then he doesn't just say that either he explains how that uh, exists for you he goes on in five verses to summarize in perhaps the most beautiful way in the entire bible the entire gospel how christ humbled himself and he came like a servant and then how he died on the cross and how he rose again and how he is exalted to the highest place and given the highest name that is all there so that you will know how to be humble if my God was humbled from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, then I could move from here to here. I can humble myself and put other people's needs above my own. If I could see my king lowering himself like that, then what could I do but be humble towards those who are with me? Every time you see a command, it is grounded in the gospel. But sometimes... The gospel is not as explicitly clear as it is for example in philippians 2. sometimes it is present in powerful yet very simple parenthetical statements like we see in romans 12 verse 1. you will know this verse he says i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship now this is an incredibly powerful command it is an intense command consider what he said Look at all of those sacrifices that you've seen. Now imagine that animal that is laid there on the altar, it's put on those rocks, and it's, and it's slit its throat, and it bleeds out, and you light it on fire. Now imagine all of that. Now imagine that's you. That's what he's saying. You are the sacrifice, and it's not like it's a one-and-done thing. He says you are to be a living sacrifice. I once described this as the Energizer Bunny on the altar just keeps going and going and going it doesn't ever end your sacrifice is ongoing forever and he says that is what you are to do with your life to lay it down for him wow that's a hard command how do we do that well he tells us in this verse in a very brief parenthetical statement you do this by the mercies of god well what is that The mercies of God is just a summary form of declaring the gospel to you. He is reminding you of chapter 1 through 11, how he has just explained what Christ has done to save sinners like you and me. He is telling you that just like Jesus came to save you from your sin and to become the greatest sacrifice, if he was the sacrifice for you, then by his mercies, shouldn't you also be a sacrifice for him? Every single command is grounded in the gospel one way or another. It is always present. When you see that Jesus has shown you love and shown you grace and shown you mercy and shown you kindness and shown you forgiveness, that is when you can have all of those things for others. You are only capable of forgiving insofar as you know you have been forgiven by him. You become what you behold. And if you behold Christ... As the glorious redeemer of your life, then you will reflect him and respond in your life to be like him. True discipleship requires beholding him and thereby being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now the third aspect of discipleship that we're going to examine today is the aspect of training. Being a disciple is, I'm convinced, the most counterintuitive pursuit known to man. I am often reminded of the final lines of William Henley's famous poem, Invictus. Do you guys know that poem? Curious. It's in a lot of movies and television shows. It's been out there for a long time. Here's the final lines. And I think this is a perfect description of every unsaved person. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is the natural cry of every human heart. But it's also a lie. Ever since our first parents went to that tree and took down that fruit and took that bite, ever since that moment, we have always lied to ourselves and we thought that we are going to be able to steer the ship of our own lives, so we refuse to give that wheel over to the Lord, the true admiral, God himself. Being an unbeliever is the unrelenting desire to be your own master. Discipleship, alternatively, is the art of being mastered. It is about surrendering everything to God. But this does not happen without a battle. This does not happen naturally or without effort. The Bible refers to this part of us, this, the part of us that still loves the world and the things of the world as our flesh. Paul goes so far as to say in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is why we need to be trained for obedience to Christ. I think Paul must have been a fan of sports. I think he liked athletics because he uses athletic metaphors often in his writing. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27, through 27, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, But we, an imperishable. Do you see that he is saying true disciples display self-control in all things? So he says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Discipleship includes self-control and self-discipline. And this comes to us in various ways. We are trained for righteousness in part simply by hearing and knowing and trusting the gospel. And having our eyes open to just how upside down we have viewed the world for our whole lives before knowing Christ. I like how Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 puts it. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and world passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In this case, how does that training occur? It occurs through God's revelation of the gospel to our hearts. We are given that wisdom and understanding by God, and thereby we are caused to be trained directly. But there are other ways to be trained by the Lord, and one way is through His correction. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In this case, it is the disciplining hand of the Lord that is the teacher. And this discipline can come in a variety of ways. It can come through difficult circumstances in your life. It can come through uh, painful guilt. Or sometimes it can come through church discipline, just to name a few. But the point stands that God uses correction as a way of training you to be disciples. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 we read that all scripture is breathed out by God, theopnustos, and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. What is the Bible good for? It is good for training you. Now, if you are an athlete, you are going to have a workout regimen that is necessary. You're going to have Running or weightlifting or swimming or whatever it is that you are going to be told is necessary in order to f- improve your craft But the exercises and the drills that you run are going to be different Based upon either what sport you play what ball you throw or kick or what position inside of that sport you play So may- maybe if you're playing football if you're on the offense, you're gonna do different uh, Learn different skills, and if you're playing defense, I know nothing about football but all I know is those people look very different when I see the people playing different positions. In fact, I know people who know football, and when they meet somebody and they say, yeah, I'm a football player, they'll say, oh, do you play? And then they'll make an educated guess based upon the physique of the individual, because based upon your size and shape and the ways that you work out, it will indicate where you can play. Well, that's not the way Christian, the Christian life works at all, because we all are to be trained by the same handbook. We have the same manual. Like an Olympic athlete, you are called to take daily stock of yourself, and you are responsible to see where you are weak, and that is where you need to work out. Now, imagine an Olympian runner who works out every muscle in his body except for his left calf muscle. And on the day of the race, he, he stands up at that line, and he gets down, and he gets in position, and everyone on the television is, like, scratching their screen, like, is something broken here? Why is every muscle in this guy's body completely toned except for that one leg? That, that one section of his body looks deflated, like, like it's atrophied. What is going on there? It's impossible to do that because if you're running, you can't run with one leg. So that's impossible to even... It's an absurd illustration. But my point being, it is an absurd thing to think that you can just work out one area of your salvation with fear and trembling and forget about the rest. I'm a pastor, part of my job is teaching and preaching. So what if I just really work on that element of my ministry and I ignore the way that I treat my family or I ignore the way that I speak, the words that I use, or I think very little of personal holiness. Well, that is a massive area and I am called to work out in all of those ways at the same time. Wherever I am weak, the scripture reveals it and I am called to exercise in the kingdom to grow in those ways and so are you. As a disciple, you are supposed to, as Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness in every area of your life. Our final two aspects of discipleship help us round out how to do that a little bit better. Our fourth focus of the morning is that discipleship is an imitating, uh, is about imitating. Now, do you remember the 90s? That was a weird time. In the 90s, there was a fad. I don't know if it was a fad here, but it was in the Midwest where I lived. There was a fad where every Christian, or at least every Christian child, got a bracelet that said WWJD, and they wore them everywhere. Was that, the thing? that was a yeah. thing here, right? Not a bad question, right? It doesn't ultimately explain the gospel, but it opens a door to share the gospel, right? Well, I share that with you because sometimes it's actually difficult to know the answer to that question. What would Jesus do? In fact, there are, there are occasions where you are presented with a challenging question Situation in your life, and, and you just don't know what to do. Well, what do you do? Well, the Corinthian church was struggling to understand how to deal with a specific cultural issue. They were asking the question, What about food sacrificed to idols? Like, am I allowed to eat that? I mean, half of this cow was taken into the temple of Zeus, and they chopped it up into pieces, and they burned part of it there and gave it to him, and the rest of it they took outside and they sold it. Can I go there and can I buy that? Can I eat that? Is that okay? And there were some people who were doing it, and they had no concern because they were like, look, Zeus is basically a cartoon character. He's not real. There's only one God, and I know him now, so what's the big deal? And there were other people who were saying, I used to worship in that temple. That's what I was doing beforehand. I can't eat that. And they were scandalized. And so there's this question, what do we do here? And that's a difficult question to answer. What do we do? And you know how Paul answers it? Over the course of time, he explains that we need to prefer those who have the concern. And even though the people on this side are right, sure, there is nothing about that food that's actually going to do anything to you. It's just food. But for the sake of the conscience of the weaker brother, he says, I would refrain. He actually concludes this entire chapter by saying, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many people, that they might be saved. That is gospel-centered motivation. It's the desire for the glory of God in what he does. Should I eat it? Will it give God glory or not? Is it going to cause a division in the church? Well, if it is, he says, I'll never eat meat again if that's the case. I'll be vegetarian. Like, I don't know if there's any vegetarians here, but to me that's like a fate worse than death. And he says, (laughs) I will do that for the sake of them, because I love them more than I love my stomach. And here he continues. in the very next words that he says, remember there's no chapter or verse breaks in the original writing. The very next words, 11.1, 1, says this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul called on Christians in Corinth to lay down their rights for the sake of their weaker brothers and for the sake of unbelievers so that many might trust and love and follow God without hindrance. And then he says, so what do you need to do? Look, I know it's a tough question. Just imitate me as I imitate Christ. Disciples are imitators. That's actually what disciple means. It means that you see the teacher and you try to be like him. Ultimately, our goal is to be conformed into the image of Christ. But sometimes it's really helpful to be imitating those who are imitating him here. It's good to latch on to other godly men and women and observe their zeal and to observe their character and to learn from them. I want to share with you that I, am one of, I, I really think that I am one of the most blessed pastors and Christians in the world. And I say that not, not as an arrogant thing, but as a grateful thing, as a humble thing. Um, those guys that I showed you on that Wednesday night worship slide before, I am thankful those are my friends. I am thankful that those pastors and those people in this church who have lived alongside of me are examples for me. They point me to Christ with the way that they speak and the way that they act. Those guys have been part of the way that I have seen how to be more like Jesus, because I have seen it in them, and now I know how to display it to everyone around me. And not only those guys, there are people in this room right now who have lived out the Christian life well in front of me and have exampled what it looks like to be an honorable Christian in this life, and I have seen that and I have learned from that. And even at home, if any of you guys know me, It doesn't take long to get to know my family to know that my wife is a way better Christian than I am. And at home, I have an example that I am pointed to Jesus daily. And I see it in her without her even speaking a word. I know what it looks like to follow Christ because I see other people doing it around me. Now, there's a lot of things I could say about this, but one of them is... If we are called to be imitators, then should not we be near those people we are supposed to imitate? Should we not be around them and focusing on them and putting emphasis on our calendars to be with them? Because look, again, you become what you behold. If you are imitating the things that you see coming from the world, if you're just watching Netflix hour after hour, you're going to become like those guys. And those people are ungodly. You do not want to be imitating those people that are seeking the world's approval. Set your attention on in, in, and focus on intentionally finding those to imitate and imitating them. Uh, insofar as somebody imitates Christ, imitate them. Now, I do want to make a warning here, which is that it is dangerous whenever we are setting our attention on created beings that we can easily turn from admiring and imitating to worshiping them. There is a danger in our society. We, we have a tendency towards pastor worship in America, I think that's probably true everywhere, but here we have mega pastors. Now, there are some mega pastors that I like. I think they are good. People like John MacArthur and John Piper. There are some people, the late, great R.C. Sproul, I love those guys. I have nothing against them, but I also know they're guys, they're people, and the best of men are men at best. And we have a danger of putting somebody on a pedestal and thinking they are incapable of sin. Now, part of this I am saying selfishly because I want you to know I am a sinner. I am a sinner, and I will sin. And if you think I am perfect, I will let you down. Insofar as I am like Christ, in those ways you can imitate me. But in ways that I am not like Christ, you need to point that out to me so that I might repent and be like him. I just want to warn you not to turn humbly imitating Christians into worshiping them. Imitate people as they imitate Christ. Which leads me to our final aspect of discipleship to consider this morning, which is that most broad and communal aspect of discipleship, namely, one anothering. Uh, In 2006, I love the NBA. That's the only sport I really pay any attention to at all. And in 2006, Kobe Bryant and his Lakers teammates they had some struggles. Now, Kobe was a great player. If There are are two teams that I can't root for in all of sports. It's the Lakers and the Yankees. Um, But I will say that the Lakers were awesome and Kobe Bryant was an amazing player. However, in one game, game six of the playoffs against the Suns, he scored 50 points on 35 shots. And at the end of the game, when they were doing their interviews, some of the other teammates were jealous that he had the ball in his hand so much and began making statements about how they thought he should stop being a ball hog. Those are my words, not theirs, but that's what they were saying. And even the coach tried to course correct, and in doing so, basically said, we probably would have won if the ball had been passed around a little bit more, indicating, get the ball out of Kobe's hands, right? Well, with all of the attitude of any NBA superstar, Kobe then went to the next game, and what did he do? He refused to shoot the ball. He said, well, if you guys really don't want me to shoot, then I just won't in fact in the second half of that game he only shot the ball three times and all of them were shot clock violation situations and he ended up having one free throw which he intentionally missed this is an insane situation and he only shot the free throw because it was a technical and he was required by his coach to do so this is an insane situation where one of the greatest players in nba history decided to go awol intentionally and what happens well it wasn't like he was passing either by the way he ended up with one assist and it was an accidental pass to this guy named Thurman who made a layup off of it and eventually at the end of the game what do you think happened the Lakers lost and remember this is not just a small game in the middle of the season that's meaningless on the calendar this is game seven in the playoffs win or go home and he just gives up on everyone in order to make a point discipleship is a community project do not give up on your team you have a team here that God has connected you to You have a vested interest in every single person in this church. When someone is sinning in this church, whether it is you or someone else, it affects all of us. That is why Paul says, do you not know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? You know that invisible stuff that's in the dough? You can't even see it. You walk away, you come back, and all of a sudden the dough is triple the size. What happened? It's because that little bit of leaven got into everything. What you do matters, and it affects everyone here we are called to serve one another love one another and various other one another's that the new testament teaches now i wish there was a better word in english for one another there's just not the greek word is all alone and here we see that there's not a really great word in english for it if there is i just can't find it but this is one of the most favorite terms used by the new testament authors they use it exactly 100 times to give commands to the church And I'm going to just list some of these right now for you, and I'm going to shotgun them at you. I realize that I talk really fast. I'm going to talk even faster. So if you take notes, do not feel required to write these down. I'm going to send this out with an even more extensive list on Thursday in the email. But what I want to do right now is just give you a sense of the fact that there are a ton of commands that you are called to do that you cannot do by yourself. And the second thing that I want you to see is that these are commands that you are supposed to have both actively and passively, meaning you are to be doing these things for others and also receiving them from others. So let's go. Ready? Lock in. We're moving fast. What are we called to do? We are called to love one another, John 13, 34. We are called to be devoted to one another, Romans 12:10. We are called to honor one another above ourselves, Romans 12:10. We are to live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. We are to build one another up, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. We are to be like-minded towards one another, Romans 15, 5. We are to accept one another, Romans fifteen seven. We are to admonish one another, Colossians three sixteen. We are to greet one another, Romans sixteen sixteen. We are to care for one another, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty five. We are to serve one another, Galatians five thirteen. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians six two. Forgive one another, Ephesians four two. Be patient with one another, Colossians three thirteen. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians four thirty two. Sing to one another, Ephesians five nineteen. Submit to one another, First. Peter 5.5. Look to the interests of one another. Philippians 2.4. Bear with one another. Colossians 3.13. Teach one another. Colossians 3.16. Comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Exhort one another. Hebrews 3.13. Stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 12, 20, 10, 24. Show hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 4.9. Pray for one another. James 5.16. Confess to one another. James 5.16. <sighs> You can't do that by yourself. You can't do any of those commands of the New Testament as a disciple individually. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian. You must do these things in the body. This is just a a representative sample of the iceberg. This is the calling that you have as a disciple, to be discipled by and to disciple others within the church here at Gateway. So what is our mission? It is discipleship. And what does that look like? It looks like genuinely being saved and beholding the glory of Christ and training yourself for godliness and imitating faithful believers and joining with the saints in the one anothering commands. This is discipleship. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that we are able to be disciples because of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us in and redeemed us and given us the great honor of serving you. Lord, I look at the disciples in the New Testament and I think, how in the world did these fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and pathetic men in many ways, how did they become the ones that you built your church upon? How, Lord, did you select these guys? And Lord, I see that in us. Lord, that you have been so merciful that you have chosen the weak out of the world to shame the wise. And so Lord, I pray for every person in this room that knows you that we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but we would humbly seek to be disciples of Christ and experience discipleship and be conformed to the image of your son. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone in the room that doesn't know you, who has not been saved by you, Lord, please let this be the day that they see Christ and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.